Let me turn your attention to Psalm 111. And while you're turning there in your Bibles, let me uh, thank uh, Kelton and the elders for inviting me to come and preach the word to you this morning. It's an honor and a privilege to be here. Uh, Though I've never been a member of Stafford Baptist, I feel like uh, that Stafford Baptist in some ways is a home for me. Over the last nine years, uh, I have partnered with Stafford Baptist uh, through several churches, and they've been a, a, your pastors and elders have been a help to me in my ministry, and so I've gotten to know some of you, and uh, of course this summer we were able to do, partner with you and do VBS, which was a, an exciting time, uh, but I was glad it got over. <laughs> Where's you out? And so I'm glad uh, to be here and to bring you the word, and if you would, turn your attention to Psalm 111, the word of the Lord. Praise the Lord. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart, in the company of the upright, in the congregation. Great are the works of the Lord, studied by all who delight in them. Full of splendor and majesty is his work, and his righteousness endures forever. He has caused his wondrous works to be remembered. The Lord is gracious and merciful. He provides food for those who fear him. He remembers his covenant forever. He has shown his people the power of his works in giving them the inheritance of the nations. The works of his hands are faithful and just. All his precepts are trustworthy. They are established forever and ever to be performed with faithfulness and uprightness. He sent redemption to his people. He has commanded his covenant forever. Holy and awesome is his name. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All those who practice it have a good understanding. His praise endures forever. Let us pray. Almighty Father, we are so grateful that you have given us your word. And that, Father, we can gather together to hear you speak to us, to guide us, to encourage us. And, Father, as we gather and hear your word, May we ponder the wonder of your works. May we ponder the fact that you have revealed yourself in your son Jesus Christ. And that we can through him know you. And be in a right relationship with you. And that we can praise you not only now but for eternity. And so Father speak to us. Strengthen us. May our hearts and our meditations glorify your son, Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. When I was 25 years old, I took a trip with my younger sister, who was 18 years old and a senior in high school. And we took a trip to visit my older sister in San Dimas, California, over one Christmas. And after we had visited her, I decided that we would take the southern route back. We li- my sister lived in Illinois, I lived in Missouri. And so I-, I decided we'd take the southern route back and we would stop and see the Grand Canyon. And my sister wasn't too excited about this. And I, in, in our trip 
uh, from the interstate up to the Grand Canyon, I discovered that my 18-year-old sister, who was a senior in high school, did not know what the Grand Canyon was. And so I told her the Grand Canyon was a big hole in the ground. And, of course, this excited her even less that she was going to see the Grand Canyon. And, and on our way, in fact, she pointed to a mountain and said, is that the Grand Canyon? And I said, no, it is a big hole in the ground. Now, when we got to the, the park, we had to pay our last $10 in cash uh, to get in, which made my sister even less excited about seeing the Grand Canyon. And so we drove the seven or so miles up to the parking lot near the rim of the Grand Canyon, and we got out, and we, we stood there, and we stared at the, the sublime beauty of the Grand Canyon, a canyon that you can, yeah, can look as far as goes as far as the eye can see either way, uh, the colors of the rocks, the vertical stripes, and the fact that it is a mile deep. And after a few minutes of silence, total silence, my sister, who is not a believer uh, then or even now, uh, out of a few minutes of silence, she starts to say, Oh my God, wow. Oh my God, wow. Oh my God, wow. And she says that over and over and over. You see, my sister, even though she was an unbeliever, that she understood in some sense that there is only one appropriate response to the wonderful works of God, and that's praise and adoration. The psalmist here starts off with his psalm with praise the Lord or hallelujah. And so he, he wants us to praise God, and he ends the psalm uh, with saying his praise shall endure forever. And so the, the emphasis of this psalm is on praise and praising our Lord, which is the proper response of those who fear the Lord. So this is a, a psalm of praise, a hymn of praise. And, and the melodic line of this uh, hymn of praise is found in verse 2. If you look at verse 2, it says, Great are the works of the Lord. And while the psalmist here will focus on the works of the Lord... He focused, this focus will lead him to point to the very character and nature of God. You see, you can't look at the works of God, the wonderful works of God, and not discover the character and nature of God. In the original language, this psalm is what's called an acrostic, uh, meaning that each line, minus the praise of the Lord, starts with one of the letters of the Hebrew alphabet in successive order. And so in the original language, uh, it would have provided a, a beauty and an order and, and an easy way to remember uh, the, the, the words of the psalm. And, and even though in our English translation there, uh, we miss that effect, there is still much poetic beauty and order that is in display in this psalm. And so the order of this psalm lends itself uh, to three sections or three parts. The first part... I'm going to call a call to praise God for his wonderful works in verses 1 through 3. Secondly, a consideration of the works of God in verses 4 through 9. And thirdly, the continual everlasting praise to God for his wonderful works in verse 10. And so let us look first at a call to praise God for his wonderful works in verses 1 through 3. Uh, we see that call, like I said, in, in the first uh, sentence of the psalm, praise the Lord. 
that the psalmist has called us to praise the Lord uh, for his wonderful works. And, and we're going to see then in these three verses, we're going to see the psalmist's commitment to praise the Lord. We're going to see the cause that he gives for praising the Lord. And then we're going to see the character and content of God's wonderful works. And first so, in verse 2, or the rest of verse 1, we see the, his commitment to praise the Lord. He says, I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart in the company of the upright in the congregation. And so here his commitment, he's committed to praise God with his whole heart. That, that means he's not going to praise God half-hearted. You know, when I was growing up, that's what my dad would say uh, a lot of times to uh, us, uh, his children. You do things half-hearted, right? And often we do things in life half-heartedly with not really any passion uh, to do them. Uh, maybe it might be a job. Maybe it might be the, uh, the chores around home that you must do, whatever it is. We do half-hearted. But, but when it comes to praising God, it's important that we don't do it half-hearted. And the psalmist here gives uh, his commitment, I will praise God with his whole heart. That means just like it says in Deuteronomy and from the words of Jesus, it means to love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength. There is no half-heartedness in that when it's with your whole being that you're going to praise the Lord, that you're committed with all of your life to praise the Lord. And this is the commitment that Saul must give. But this commitment is very specific. He says, in the company of the upright in the congregation. And so we see here that where he's going to praise God is among God's people as they're gathered together to worship him. And so this shows the importance, the importance of why, uh, of the importance for God's people to gather together often that they might praise God. Now, of course, of course, we can praise God on our own, right? We can praise God at home, and we should. Uh, we should praise God when we're uh, personally reading Scripture, and, and we should. Uh, but ultimately, that praise must manifest itself among God's people as we're gathered together and, and exalting Him, as we're living in deep fellowship with one another in the life of the church. And so we see the psalmist's commitment to praise the Lord. But then in verse 2, we see his, the cause uh, to praise the Lord. He says, he says, great are the works of the Lord studied by all who delight in them. Great are the works of the Lord. And he says, he says the reason to praise God is for his wonderful works because they are great. That they are great. From the smallest to the, the largest or the greatest work of God, they are great. God does nothing too small. Even if it's a small thing in our life, it's great because God is doing it. But the reason they are great is because God has done them. Now, if I do something, it may not be great because I'm, I'm just a, a, a person. But the God and creator of the universe, when he does something, he is great. That is his character, and so his works are great. That's reason alone uh, to praise him. Uh, but also, uh, it says, uh, the re uh, second reason is it's studied by all who delight in them. And from that, we can see that God's works are great, and they're delightful. They're delightful. And, and he says, studied by all who delight in them. And that word there actually means sought out, sought out. And, and so in other places in Psalms, like Psalm 119, verse 45, or Psalm 119, verse 94, there the psalmist says, I sought out your precepts. And of course, God's word is one of his wonderful works. 
Psalm 143.5, uh, the psalmist there says, I remember the days of old. I meditate on all that you've done. I ponder the works of your hands. And so because God's words are great, because they are delightful, that we ought to, we ought to seek them out, we ought to study them, we ought to ponder them so that we might praise God for his greatness. Now, we seek them out and ponder them not for full comprehension because that would be a fool's errand this side of eternity, but we seek them out, as he says here, uh, to delight in them because we delight in them and we delight in God. Just like King David in Psalm 8, he, that psalm is, is a psalm uh, where he ponders uh, the majestic glory of God. He says, oh God, oh God, how majestic is your name in the, all of the earth. Uh, that you have set your glory in the heavens. And then he asked the question, what is man that you're mindful of him? And so there he's pondering another great work of God, the, the creation of man. And, and so uh, he, it's, he's delighting in the fact that God is thinking of him, that he thinks of man, and that he has set man above the creatures of the earth and has given dominion uh, over all things. And so it's important as those who, who call themselves Christians and followers of Christ, it's important that we meditate, that we ponder, that we seek out the wonderful works of God. And the place to do that, of course, is not only in creation, like if you're staring at the Grand Canyon, but to do so also in his word in that. And so we see the cause to praise the Lord. And then finally, in verse 3, in this first section, we see the character and content of God's wonderful works. It says, full of splendor and majesty is his work, and his righteousness endures forever. And, and so we see here that uh, the character of his works is that they're described as full of splendor and majesty, and that his righteousness endures Forever, And so we hear words like glorious, awe-inspiring, marvelous, magnificent, kingly, righteous. Now this, is, this not only describes his works, though. The reason that describes its work, his works is because it describes God himself. God is marvelous and magnificent and kingly and righteous and glorious and majestic. And so, and so when we look at, when we get to verses 4 through 9, as we look, as the psalmist has us consider the wonderful works of God and their character, you're actually staring into the character of God. You're looking into the face of God when you see his glorious and great works. And so that is the content, the content. Um, uh, Moses puts it this way in Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 4. He says, the rock. His work is perfect, for all his ways are justice, a God of faithfulness, and without inequity, just and upright is he. He said his, all his works are justice. That describes not only his works, but God. God is just and upright, Moses says, is he. Now that's the character, the content of God's wonderful works is the fact that it's first of all found in creation. It's first found in creation. And so we see uh, the wonderful works of God in his creation. Uh, Psalm 19.1, the psalmist says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the skies above proclaim his handiwork. Or Psalm 102.25, 
where the psalmist writes, Of old you laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the works of your hands. Or Psalm 104, verse 24, O Lord, how manifold are your works. In wisdom you have made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. And then I just point you back to Psalm 8. One of his uh, wonderful works of creation is man. Man is also his wonderful work. And so the psalmist can write in Psalm 139, verse 14, I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. And so uh, one of the works is his creation. But the second part of the content of his wonderful works is his acts and wonders as a redeemer. His acts and wonders as a redeemer. And this is what we're going to see in verses 4 through 9 as the psalmist rehearses the acts of God's redemption, his acts and wonders, uh, and, and so he can, uh, considers those, and these are found in the exodus from Egypt, in the wilderness journey, in the giving of the law at Mount Sinai, when, uh, where God reveals himself. He not only gives the law at Mount Sinai, but he actually reveals himself to Moses, his glory, and then he tells Moses, describes Moses who he is, the Lord, the Lord, uh, gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. So we see that, uh, that God uh, reveals himself. His revelation of himself is one of his wonderful acts of redemption. And, of course, the conquest of the promised land. And so as God's people who look back at what God has done uh, 2,500 years, over 2,500 years later than when the psalmist wrote this psalm, we look back uh, to what God has done through the cross of Christ. And so Christ's incarnation and advent, his life, death, and resurrection, and his future return, including his church, the assembly of God's people, are all part of God's acts and wonders of his plan of redemption, his wonderful work of redemption that is found in Jesus Christ. And so the God who is creator who is king over all the nations, is a redeemer, and he has called and redeemed his people in righteousness. That's what it says there, his righteousness endures forever. Why? Because Why are his works righteous? Because God is righteous and his righteousness will endure forever. If you would, if you would just turn over uh, really quickly to Psalm 103, where we see God's righteousness displayed. In verses 6 through 13, the psalmist tells us that the Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He made made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, low to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our inequities. Isn't that a wonderful work of the Lord? That he doesn't deal with us according to our sins or repay us according to our inequities? For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we... Our dust, All of them wonderful works of our Redeemer as he, God worked his righteousness 
through his son Jesus Christ, so that he who knew no sin might become sin for us, so that we might become the righteousness of God. What a wonderful work that is, that Christ took upon our sin upon himself, upon the cross. He died for us. In our place, because it says God will not clear the guilty, he took our guilt and our sin upon himself and died for us in our place. That is the wonderful work of God. And that's why Moses can proclaim in Exodus 15:11, Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? Or Micah, in Micah 7:18, can say, who is, who is a God like you, pardoning inequity and passing over transgression? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. Oh, the wonderful works of God in redemption. The Lord's work is full of splendor and majesty. There is none like him for his righteousness endures forever. And so in verses 1 through 3, we see the call to praise the the Lord for his wonderful works. Now in verses 4 through 9 then, we're going to see the psalmist's consideration of the wonderful works of God. First, we're going to see uh, that he, in these verses that he's going to lay out the, the ground for the praise of God, the cause of why we should praise God. And, and we'll see uh, God's wonderful works in redemptive history. And to include, as I said before, his scriptural revelation, uh, but also the fact that he has sent redemption to his people in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so let us look, starting at verse 4. Verse 4 tells us he has caused his wondrous works to remember to, re, to be remembered. The Lord is gracious and merciful. And so the first wonderful work we see here that the psalmist tells us to consider is the fact that the Lord is compassionate in causing his wonderful works to be remembered. That's what it says here. The word is caused, but really uh, it's probably better translated he made, he has made his wondrous works to be remembered. And, and you're probably thinking, how is that a great work? How is that a wonderful work? Well, let me illustrate that for a moment and uh, in, in, uh, how he has made it and why, how he's made his wonderful works to be remembered and why. I was reading an article uh, every once in a while in the news. They have these articles about people who have invented things in the past. And so one article was about the guy who invented the stoplight. Uh, and and uh, he not only invented the stoplight, he invented the gas mask that they ended up using in World War One. And so here's a guy who has done, those are some great works, right? Everyone appreciates a stoplight <laughs> if you're traveling uh, on the road. And and uh, if you're in a, if you're in a, cave or, or in a war, I guess, you appreciate a gas mask. And, and, and so, but after, uh, after uh, uh, probably half a century, uh, people really didn't know who invented those. They forgot the man, uh, despite his great works. You see, this is why God makes his, this is a wonderful work, that God makes his works to be remembered, because how it is important for us to remember what God has done in order that we might follow and praise him. You see, we're forgetful people, aren't we? That we, uh, we forget what God has done for us in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Uh, our hearts are, are idol factories. The default of our hearts is man-made religion. 
And, and so if we're not constantly reminded of who God is and what he has done for us, then we'll forget about God's wonderful works. And, and so this is, a, this is a compassion for us. This is God showing his grace and mercy to us uh, by reminding us of his works, by making them to remem- be remembered uh, in them. And so that makes God great and glorious that he um, wants us to remember for our good and for his glory his wonderful works. And so how does he do that? One, he does it through his word and his command. In his word, he has commanded his people uh, to be not careful to forget the Lord. In Deuteronomy, he said that to Moses and the Israelites, be careful not to forget the Lord who brought you out of Egypt, that place of slavery. He told them to write the law on doorposts, to to put it on uh, their foreheads and their arms, uh, to teach their children uh, in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4 through 13. In Deuteronomy chapter 27, he said when you cross the Jordan, uh, grab some large stones, put them together in the altar, plaster it over and write on that altar all the words of the law. And so that is one way that he has done that through his word. And we also know in crossing over the Jordan River to conquer the promised land, he told them to take 12 stones from the river and set up a memorial stone so that they could remember uh, later generations uh, to do that. He's told them in his word to celebrate the Passover. Uh, and in celebrating the Passover, that is a remembrance of God's uh, bringing them out of slavery in Egypt. And so on and on, we see that God in his word has commanded his people to remember his great works in that. And for us, and as God's people gather together in the body of Christ, how has God uh, commanded us to remember his wonderful work in the person and work of Christ? He's done it through our celebration of the Lord's Supper. Right, That as we celebrate the Lord's Supper, uh, we are remembering the fact that Christ's body was broken and his blood was spilt, that we might have the forgiveness of sins and inherit eternal life. And so, that's, uh, and so the psalmist here says, because he has made his wonderful works to be remembered, that, the Lord, uh, that shows that the Lord is gracious and merciful, that he's compassionate to us, and that the reason he causes us to remember his wonderful works is because, uh, as I said earlier, we're forgetful people. And so he has caused us to remember his wonderful works. And in doing so, in remembering his wonderful works, and doing what the psalmist here says to, to study them, to ponder them, to seek them out, we are strengthened in our faith and given assurance of the Lord's steadfast love and faithfulness and his provision to us. When you read through the word of God, when, when you read through the stories of God's uh, rescuing his people and providing for him, that is to remind us of God's faithfulness, to give us assurance that God has saved us and to strengthen our faith in God and to trust in him. And that's a grace and mercy. Secondly, we are led to readily pray knowing God answers our prayers. We can study the word of God and see how God has answered prayer. And in doing so, in in pondering the wonderful works of God concerning prayer, it should lead us to readily pray more easily, knowing and trusting in God to answer our prayers. And and finally, uh, that 
that uh, the whole point of the psalmist in writing the psalm that when we ponder and study the works of God, when he causes us to remember them, that we break forth in praise easier and more often because we can rejoice in the wonderful works that God has done, especially in redemption. And so this is a wonderful work of God that he has caused his wonderful works to remember. But secondly, we see the wonderful work of God in the fact that the Lord keeps his covenant forever. Look at verse 5. He says he provides food for those who fear him. He remembers his covenant forever. He provides food for those who fear him as a reference uh, probably most likely to God's provision of manna and quail in the wilderness, but it also could be a reference to his provision of agricultural blessings in the promised land for those who fear him and keep his covenant, because that was part of his covenant promises. You find in Deuteronomy, he told them, when you go into land and you conquer land and inherit the land, if you keep my law, then you'll be blessed. And he pronounced agricultural blessings. And, And so this also could be a reference to God's faithfulness to his covenant promises. And so that's what we see here, whether it be by his provision of food in the wilderness or his provision of food in the promised land, that God, we see that God is, is, uh, keeps his covenant promises, that he's faithful to keep his covenant promises, that God never forgets his covenant promises. He promised, made a, a promise to Adam and Eve uh, con- concerning uh, 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 redemption that that one of her seeds shall crush uh, Satan and he kept that promise in Jesus Christ and we see all through the Old Testament how God kept his covenant promises and fulfilled them in the person and work of Jesus Christ uh, who brought the new covenant and promises of God and so God is faithful to the fact that that uh, uh, that wonderful one of his wonderful works is the fact that God keeps his covenant promises Psalm 105 verse 8 says, He remembers his covenant forever, the word that he commanded for a thousand generations, the covenant that he made with Abraham. He sworn the promise to Isaac, which he confirmed to Jacob as a statute, to Israel as an everlasting covenant, saying, To you I will give the land of Canaan as your portion for an inheritance. And so God keeps his covenant promises to his people. He keeps his promise of salvation found in Jesus Christ that the promise, that covenant promise in the new covenant is that Christ will return and the dead in Christ shall rise and that all that is crooked will be made straight, that justice will be served when Christ the King returns. Thirdly then, we see in verses 6 through 7, we see that the Lord is faithful and just. One of the great wonderful works of God is the fact that he is faithful and just And this is shown in the fact that he has given his people the inheritance of the nations that he promised. Here it says he has shown his people the power of his works in giving them the inheritance of the nations. The works of his hands are faithful and just. And and so this verses 6 and 7, A, there form a complete paragraph in how God has kept his uh, promise, how he's faithful and just in leading his people out of Egypt into the promised land as he promised. And and he showed his power, he showed his greatness in that wonderful work by leading them uh, into the promised land and conquering the peoples and nations that were there. 
And, and he was faithful in keeping that promise by uh, the promise that he gave Abraham, right? He, I shall make of you uh, a, a, a nation and you shall be great and then other nations will be blessed in you. And so he promised Abraham that he would give him a inheritance of nations and continued that promise. Uh, and we see that fulfilled uh, for the Israelites in them entering the promised land. But for the Christian... For the Christian, that, that uh, we also have a promise of the inheritance of nations. And that promise is in the fact that, that, that we are to go out into all the nations and make disciples of all peoples, every tribe, tongue, and nation. And that will be fulfilled, we see that fulfilled in Revelation chapter 7. And, and so God has promised us and has given us an inheritance of the nations. That promise, of course, starts with his son, uh, who is the king, who will be given the inheritance of the nations. And then as those who are, as Christians who rule, who rule jointly with him, that we, part of that is uh, our promise, that through our preaching and proclamation of the gospel and discipling others, that we will have an inheritance of a nation. So that to, at one point, all tribes tongues and nations shall praise him and so we see here that the lord one of his great works is the fact that he is faithful and just he's faithful and just and god isn't just just part of the time he's just in all his work that's what moses said had told us already in deuteronomy all his ways are justice Fourthly, then, in verses 7 and B through 8, we see uh, the wonderful work of the fact that the Lord is trustworthy. The Lord is trustworthy. And this is seen in the fact that his word is trustworthy. And so it says, all his precepts are trustworthy. Uh, they are established forever and ever to be performed with faithfulness and uprightness. And so here, uh, the psalmist is talking about God's word as revealed in the law, and we have God's word uh, in also in the New Testament, and we know that it's trustworthy. And so the psalmist is saying, because God's word is trustworthy, the Lord is trustworthy. Remember, you can't separate his great works uh, from his character. They are great because he is great. And, and so the Lord the, uh, is trustworthy. And so, because the Lord is trustworthy, His word is trustworthy. In fact, it says, it says there that they're established forever and ever. Isaiah forty-eight tells us the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. His word is trustworthy. We can trust God's word uh, and follow it as He establishes His covenant. Uh, his word and His covenant are based on His promises, and God never lies. He fulfills. All his promises. That's what he means by there that he there to be performed with faithfulness and uprightness. It's talking about God that God will perform his word, will carry out his word with faithfulness and uprightness. This is the wonderful work of the law, the Lord, that he has given this, the law, and it is trustworthy because God himself is trustworthy. And then finally, the wonderful work of the Lord we see in verse 9. Is because the Lord is holy and awesome in the fact that he has sent redemption to his people. It says here, he sent redemption to his people. He has commanded his covenant forever. Holy and awesome is his name. God has sent redemption to his people. We've already seen in the earlier verses how he's done that. He sent redemption to his people in, in, in Exodus as he saved them from slavery in Egypt. 
He restored his people from the exile after they were taken to Babylon, that he returned his people, he redeemed them, uh, and he brought them back to Jerusalem and rebuilt the temple. But, uh, but his greatest act uh, of redemption, the culmination of his plan of redemption in history, is in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And, and so we see that in uh, Christ's death on the cross. We see actually beginning with the fact that God promised to send the Messiah, a, a Savior who would save his people from their sin. Matthew one twenty one, she will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Or Luke one sixty eight, blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has revisited, he has visited and redeemed his people. And he has done so in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so the God who redeemed his people in the past has redeemed his people in the present and will complete his redemption in the person and work of Jesus Christ. This is something he's commanded. He commanded his covenant forever. This is a sure word that we know that that when we trust in Jesus Christ, when we turn away from our sin and we place all our trust in the person and work of Jesus Christ for his death on the cross, we can know that we will be saved. Uh, And that even though salvation waits a a future for Christ's return, for its consummation, we can know without a doubt that we'll be saved because God is holy and awesome and he keeps his covenant forever. And so he has commanded his covenant forever. And Jesus himself is a guarantee of that covenant. He is a guarantee of a better covenant, Hebrews 7.12 tells us, that Jesus himself is that guarantee. And Hebrews 9 verse 15 tells us Christ is the mediator of a new covenant that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance now that he has died as a ransom to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant. And so Christ, Jesus Christ, is the fulfillment of God's plan of redemption. It was through his death on a cross and his resurrection that he has ransomed us from our sins, from our guilt, and he has set us free from the wrath and judgment of God. That's why the psalmist can say, holy and awesome is his name. And we can say with the psalmist, because of Jesus Christ, holy and awesome is his name. And it tells us that he will exalt his name, uh, holy and awesome in his name. And this really is saying he's going to exalt his name through the wonderful work of redemption in Christ Jesus. That's what God does. That God glorifies himself. God gives himself praise in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so this leads us to the last section, the last verse in the psalm, which is the continual and everlasting praise of God and his wonderful works. And verse 10 is the psalmist's response. It's really the conclusion in saying, here's, here's how we ought to respond to everything the psalmist has just said. He says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All those who practice it have a good understanding. His praise endures forever. And so if the point of the psalm is the praise of God for his wonderful works, then what the psalmist is saying here in verse 10 is that the praise of God begins with the fear of the Lord. Then it includes the practice of wisdom and it results in eternal praise to our great and wonderful God that it results in eternal praise to our great and wonderful God. But it begins, he says, the eternal praise of the Lord begins with the fear of the Lord. 
Now, the psalmist here, in, in saying the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, is quoting uh, parts of Psalm 1-7, I'm sorry, Proverbs 1-7 and Proverbs 9-10. In Proverbs 1-7, it says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. And in Proverbs 9.10, he says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. And so in quoting that, what the psalmist here is saying, that, that the beginning of praise is the fear of the Lord, and, and that, that fear of the Lord is the fundamental principle for wisdom, for understanding and knowing God in his wonderful works. To paraphrase, a, a theologian who, who uh, wrote it this way, but I'm going to paraphrase a little. He said, what the alphabet is to reading, notes to reading music, and numerals to mathematics, the fear of the Lord is to attaining the revealed knowledge of God and his wonderful works in order that we might praise him. Now, when I was seven years old, uh, and I, I believed in God when I was seven years old, I can distinctly remember believing in God, but... But my, my view of God was that he was this angry man in, in, in the sky, somewhere up, up high, uh, with a long beard, longer than mine, right, and up there uh, in the sky. And he was just waiting for me to do something wrong so he could stomp on me and, and, and punish me, uh, right? And that was my view of God when I was seven years old. Be, why? Because I, I didn't understand who God was. I didn't believe and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and so I couldn't know and, and see that God was good, that he was righteous, that he was just, that he was compassionate and graceful uh, and merciful, that he was full of steadfast love. I, I couldn't see those things. All I could see as an unbeliever that God uh, was an angry God and he wanted to punish me and stomp on me. You see, this is why the fear of the Lord is important because it is the beginning of wisdom. It's the fundamental principle for understanding and knowing who God is and following his ways. And now that I know Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior, that my idea of God fundamentally changed. I, I no longer saw God as this angry man up in the sky waiting to stomp on me, but I saw a loving God uh, who loved me so much who loved me from the foundations of the world, that even before the foundation of the world, he had a plan to send his son, Jesus Christ, into the world to die for my sins. And, and I, I couldn't, it just left me, as my sister said, wow, you know, it left me speechless in the sense of I couldn't believe that God would send someone to die for me, that he would do something for me. And this is what the fear of the Lord does. It helps us understand and know the wonderful works of God. And so when you think about the fear of the Lord, that's not a term that's often used today, uh, but when you think of the fear of the Lord, the, the Bible uses that term inter interchangeably with obedience and with love. And so when you fear the Lord, you love the Lord, you delight in him, you serve him, uh, you love him with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And, and if you fear the Lord, you're obedient to the Lord. You're obedient to his word and to his will. And, and this is brought out well in Deuteronomy chapter 10, verses 12 through 22. I'm not going to read it for you, but if you go there and, later, and read it later, you'll find words like obedient. It starts off with saying, fear the Lord. And then you'll find words like obedience, love, service, 
to serve God with all your heart and soul. It talks about keeping his commands, uh, humility. Uh, and, and so humility is, is part of fearing the Lord. The, the humility that says there's a God and I'm not he. Uh, and so that's important. Kindness. If, uh, a just fear of God's authority and power as a just judge. Uh, part of that fear is holding fast to God and nothing else. Trusting in his power and authority. And of course, praise. Giving God praise for who he is and what he has done. And so this is the fear of the Lord. And the psalmist says the fear of the Lord. It's the beginning of wisdom. The beginning of knowing who God is and praising him for his wonderful works. And so let me ask you a question. Do these qualities mark your relationship with Jesus Christ? Have you turned away from your sin and trusted in the redeeming work of Jesus Christ on the cross? You see, the fear of the Lord starts with trusting in Jesus Christ. If you're here today and you're an unbeliever, until you trust in Jesus Christ, you can't know God. You can't delight in his wonderful works. You can't praise him for who he is. It starts with trusting in Jesus Christ. When you trust in Jesus Christ, the blinders are taken off your eyes and your mind and your heart. And so it begins, uh, fear of the Lord begins with your trust in Jesus Christ. And then we see here that, that the fear of the Lord leads to wisdom. It leads to wisdom. And, and so the second thing I would say to you, what the psalmist says here is, is fear the Lord, but secondly, practice wisdom. Practice wisdom. Now, you might hear that and say, well, Darren, I'm not very wise. How can I practice wisdom? Well, if you say you're not very wise, that's the beginning of humility. And so you are practicing wisdom, right? But let me be more practical for you of how to practice wisdom. Psalm 19.7 says this. It says, the testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. What is the testimony of the Lord but his word? And so if you're going to practice wisdom, you must seek out and study the wonderful works of God in his word. Just like he says in verse 2, that they're studied by all who delight in them. And and so it's important as Christians that we seek out and study the wonderful works of God in his word. We'll, we'll We'll never praise God as much as we should if we don't seek out and study the wonderful works of God, especially especially his plan of redemption and the person and work of Jesus Christ. You see, when you become a Christian, I, when I became a Christian, uh, you don't show up fully formed, do you? You don't show up ready to be a pastor or, or a Sunday school teacher or, or a Bible study leader, right? It takes time and maturity in that, and it takes study of God's word in, in, to do that. And so we don't form up, we don't show up when we first trust in Christ as people who are ready to give Christ praise for what he has done in our lives uh, and, and to give God praise for who he is and his wonderful works. Uh, and, and so because we don't, that often we neglect, when we neglect God's word in, in the pondering of his wonderful works, that we fail to give him praise. And instead of praise, we give him grumbling. Just like the Israelites in the wilderness, right, who grumbled. Even though God's wonderful works were on display right in their face, they turned around and they still grumbled uh, in that. And so it's important that we seek out and study the wonderful works of God. Charles Spurgeon, the great uh, uh, preacher of the 19th century, he he said it this way, the, the proper study of God's elect is God. 
the highest science, the loftiest speculation, the mightiest philosophy which can ever engage the attention of a child of God is the name, the nature, the person, the work, the doings, and the existence of the great God whom he calls his father. Charles Spurgeon preached that when he was 20. That was his first sermon. Pretty, pretty wise there. And so this is a course of action that is taken by those who love the Lord and his word. We, we study his word. And there is no greater work than the gospel. There's no greater work God, than God has done through the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And, and so, get, so seek out and get to know Jesus Christ and his word. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30 tells us, And because of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So that, is, so that as it is written, let one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And so as you get to know Christ and, the, and, and who he is and what he has done more and more, that you're going you're gonna to boast this means there to praise him, to, to glory in him. And, and, and so you're going to boast in the Lord and praise him more. And, and Colossians 3.2 tells us that in Christ, in him are hidden all the treasures and wisdom and knowledge. And so if you're going to practice wisdom, the way to practice wisdom is to get to know Jesus Christ. In him is all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And so seek out and study the gospel. Seek out and study the person and work of Jesus Christ. And not only will it equip you to praise God, it will equip you to proclaim God, won't it? And so seek out and study. But part of that study, meditate and delight in the works of God. Like David in Psalm 8, or the psalmist in 992 verse 5, who says, How great are your works, O Lord, your thoughts are very deep. Or Psalm 112, 1, Blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who greatly delights in his commands. And so meditate and delight on the wonderful works of God. And then, of course, Obey the word of God. That's part of the fear of the Lord is obeying his word in that. And when we seek out and study the wonderful works of God, when we meditate on and delight in his wonderful works and his word, when we obey his word and we have truly pondered the wonderful works of God, we can't help but be filled with fear and love and trust. And we'll give expression to that reverence, that, that fear of the Lord, by not only obeying his word, but also praising his name. As Jeremiah says in Jeremiah chapter 9, verse 4, But let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. And so what the psalmist says here is that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. You get to know and understand God and his wonderful works. You practice, that's through the practice of wisdom, the study, meditating, and obeying of his word. And that results in praise, eternal praise, to God the Father and his son Jesus Christ. And so my last point here is then proclaim praise. That's what the psalmist has called us to do, to proclaim praise. This is, this is he ends here with where he started with praise. He says, praise God. Praise the Lord, the Almighty. That is actually one of the hymns in your hymn book, Hymns of Grace. We use the hymn, Hymn of Grace at North Stafford. I love that hymn book. It's very good. And praise the Lord, the Almighty says simply this. Uh, I think the, the, the writer of that hymn captures this psalm very well. He says, praise the Lord, the Almighty, the King of creation, 
Oh, my soul, praise him, for he is your health and salvation. Come, all who hear, now to his temple draw near. Join me in glad adoration. Praise the Lord above all things so wondrously reigning, sheltering you under his wings and so gently sustaining. Have you not seen all that is needful has been set, sent by his gracious ordaining? Praise to the Lord who will prosper your work and defend you. Surely his goodness and mercy shall daily attend you. Ponder anew what the Almighty can do if with his love he befriends you. Praise the Lord, O let all that is in me adore him. All that has life and breath come now with praises before him. Let the amen sound from his people again. Gladly, forever adore him. You see, when confronted by God and his wonderful works, what he has done, only a wholehearted response of praise and adoration is adequate. The appropriate response to the wonderful works of God is for the people of God to gather praise him. To praise him with our whole heart, as the psalmist says, in the midst of the company of the upright in the congregation. And you know what? I don't know about you, but I love congregational singing. I love praising the Lord. We're not very big at North Stafford, so we have one family with four little children. And when we sing, you can hear them singing. Not the right words, but you can hear them singing. And that's just joyful to hear them praising God in that. And so you're never too young and you're never too old to praise the Lord. We have a gentleman, one of our elders, who's 90 years old. And when he can, he still comes and he praises and sings the songs and praises God. You're never too old to praise God. You see, and, and the thing here the psalmist ends with is that his praise, his praise endures forever. You see, when we praise God, when we become uh, Christians and place our trust in Jesus Christ and the person and work of Jesus Christ, then it says his praise will endure forever. That he has given his son, Jesus Christ. And the people of the new covenant that will have the inheritance of nations who will praise God forever. And this is, this is shown for us in Revelation chapter 7 verse 9. And, and so I want to end there. I want to end in Revelation chapter 7 verse 9 through 11. And he says, after this I looked and behold... A great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying without a loud voice, crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels who were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne And worship God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power be to our our God forever and ever. Amen. See, the only appropriate response to God and his wonderful works in Christ Jesus is praise forevermore. Let us pray. Father, how can our hearts not be filled 
with praise when we ponder your wonderful work in Christ Jesus. Who willingly left his throne in heaven and put on flesh and dwelt among us. Who voluntarily of his own will. Because of your love and his love for us. Went to the cross. And his body was broken. And his blood was spilt. That we might be free from your wrath. Have the forgiveness of sins. Overcome sin and death. And, eternal, and inherit eternal life. Oh, Father, what a wonderful work. What a wonderful work that he who knew no sin became sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God. And so, Father, let us praise you. Praise you with our whole heart, with our mind, our soul, our spirit, our emotions, our strength, everything that we have. For you deserve it. You're the creator. You're the sustainer. And you're our redeemer. To you we give all the praise. In Christ Jesus' name we pray. Amen.